service. Hey, are you guys proud dog owners like I am? You ever wonder why so many dogs are suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, you know Katherine Heigl from Knocked Up, she's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation. And she says that she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. After doing a ton of research, Catherine feels that there's one place that we can all look to improve our dog's health, and that is their food. Many dog foods can actually create toxins that can be wrecking our dog's health. Okay, and this is true even for many of the premium dog food brands. However, by just adding a few special superfoods to our dog's diets, we can see huge transformations in their health. Catherine Heigl has already done this. She's made a video about it. You guys need to watch this video. It's a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. This worked amazingly for my dog, Dusty. I'm noticing more energy, healthier skin, uh, healthier coat. Dusty's coat looks fantastic. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash disgraceland and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash Disgraceland. Disgraceland is brought to you by Disgraceland All Access. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Sonny Rollins are insane. At the age of 29, when he was recognized as the greatest living tenor saxophone player, he disappeared. For two whole years, he played no gigs and recorded no music. Instead, he practiced nearly every day alone on the Williamsburg Bridge. He did this after years of heroin abuse and petty crime. He was a pickpocket. He was arrested once for armed robbery and again for doing dope while on parole. And he did time at Rikers Island, not once, but twice. He took the cure at a government facility where the CIA conducted secret LSD experiments on unsuspecting patients. And both before and after his now mythical leave of absence, Sonny Rollins, a true saxophone colossus, made great music. Some of the greatest jazz music of all time. Unlike that music I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Skanks and Praises, MK1. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to The Three Bells by The Browns. And why would I play you that specific slice of grand old Opry cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on August 25th, 1959. And that was the day that Sonny Rollins grabbed a gun hopped in a cab and made a choice that would alter the course of his life forever. On this episode, the Williamsburg Bridge, Rikers Island, heroin, armed robbery, and Sonny Rollins. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Disgraceland. 
From Grand Street, he cut up Clinton, two blocks over to Delancey, his hand tight on the handle of the case that held his Mark VI tenor sax. The smell of rye drifted from a kosher deli, sour brine from a pickle vendor on the corner. Taxi cabs conversed with their horns. Hammers pounded out a rhythm from a construction site. Always construction. But he wasn't listening. Something else had his attention. He stopped by the newspaper stand and gazed at the hulking mass of steel in front of him. The Williamsburg Bridge wasn't the Brooklyn Bridge. It wasn't poetic or picturesque. Unless graffiti and junkies were your idea of poetry. The Williamsburg Bridge was car wrecks and crime. A diving board for George Bailey types looking to make one last goodbye in this cruel world. But he didn't see ugly when he looked at that bridge. He saw hope. He saw a sanctuary. A place to disappear for hours at a time, days even, and just blow his horn. Up on the bridge, he could do the work he so desperately needed to do and not bother anyone. The work was necessary. He was dissatisfied. His sound and his playing needed improvement. He had to get better. He knew it would take time. So he canceled his upcoming gigs and his studio sessions. He was on bridge time now. He climbed the steps. A subway car rattled overhead. The J, the M, maybe the Z train. He didn't notice. He didn't hear the moan of the tug in the East River below either. At the top, he found a cranny to hide inside, took his Mark VI out of its case and began to play. In 1959, at 29 years old, Sonny Rollins was the acknowledged colossus of the tenor sax. Downbeat Magazine's prestigious annual poll ranked him number one. His friend Miles Davis called him brilliant. But it was guys like Miles who were forging a new path forward in jazz. Kind of blue, Miles' record was something else. And not just Miles, John Coltrane too. Train had giant steps and Ornette Coleman had the shape of jazz to come. Sonny Rollins' peers were leaving him in the dust. Sure, he played to good audiences and he got good marks and he got paid, but it wasn't about the crowds or the critics or the money. It was about something bigger than all that. It was about getting better, being better, and not better than Miles or better than Train. It wasn't a quantifiable thing, it was a feeling an intuition, a personal sense of achievement. That feeling was somewhere out there, in the sky and in the clouds on this bridge. He looked out at the East River, and though he couldn't see it, he knew the 400-acre island was out there, around the bend, on the other side of Astoria, and he never wanted to set foot on that island again. He could only guess what people were saying about him down on the street this time. Where did Sonny go? Did he retire? Is he back in the pen? Is he dead? Anything was better than what they used to say about him. Years ago, the best piece of advice echoing around Harlem and Manhattan was if you saw Sonny Rollins coming, you walked the other way. Nineteen fifty-one, New York City. His nerves were shot. His pockets were empty. He stood in the aisle of the city bus, holding onto the step, and quickly found his mark. A square, middle-aged, on her way home from work. Standing next to him, 
pocketbook slung around her shoulder. He made eye contact with the guy standing on the woman's other side, and he waited for the bus to make a wide turn. As it did, he pretended to lose his balance and stumbled into her. Excuse me, I I'm sorry, ma'am, are you all right? And he grabbed onto her arms to steady the both of them. And as he did this, the other guy stuck his hand inside her pocketbook and relieved her of her purse. Sonny Rollins and his fellow pickpocketer got off at the next stop. They examined their spoils. Ten bucks. Good enough to cop a bag of dope, which, if they split it, would maybe last them half the week. And by then, Sonny would be playing another session for Prestige Records, which meant more money for more dope. Sonny Rollins was just 21 years old, still young, still green. He had a brand new record deal, but those motherfuckers at Prestige barely paid enough for your next fix, and that's why they called Prestige the Junkies label, because they always kept you coming back. And Sonny needed to come back, just like Sonny needed to steal money from Marks on the bus. Because just like Miles and Charlie Parker, just like so many others, Sonny Rollins was deep into a heroin addiction. At first, the addiction was music. It was Louis Jordan playing three sets a night at the Elks Rendezvous in Harlem. Coleman Hawkins with Body and Soul, a hell of a tune for sure, but Coleman was cool as shit. He wore nice clothes and drove fancy cars, and that made an impression on young Sonny Rollins. His mom got him a horn and he practiced in his closet where he wouldn't bother anyone. He taught himself to play, taught himself to be cool as shit. Even though he was underage, he had a friend in Thelonious Monk more like an older brother. 13 years his senior, Monk snuck Sonny into the clubs on 52nd Street. That was another lesson. On 52nd Street, you could watch gods play right in front of you. Gods like Charlie Parker, Bird. Bird was a prophet. He played and you listened, and everyone did what Bird did. Bird played fast, so you played fast. Bird walked funny, so you walked funny. Bird shot dope, so you shot dope too. Heroin came to Harlem in 1948, the same year that the long playing album came to the record industry. Both of those things had a profound effect on jazz. Longer records meant more space for the music, which had moved beyond jump and swing into bebop and longer improvisation. But dope was the opposite of bebop. Where bebop was fast, dope was slow but it was also powerful, so powerful, that Sonny Rollins would do anything to get more of it. Kenny Drew put the pistol in Sonny's hand. This wasn't how he usually did it. Sonny was the guy who distracted the mark, not the one who waved a gun and shouted orders. But they were gonna need it, Kenny told him, at least for show. Kenny was one of the best piano players in town. Sonny trusted him in the studio, and he trusted him on this, too. Lifting purses for women on the bus wasn't cutting it anymore. Sonny needed bigger scores. Bigger scores meant bigger risks. Sonny, Kenny, and a mutual friend climbed into a taxi cab, and they had the driver stop at 59th and Lexington. The plan was to find a place that was open and empty, maybe Midtown or the Upper East Side, rob them at gunpoint, split the cash, and get a fix. They barely made it out of the cab when a voice spoke behind them. What do you think you're doing, son? Sonny felt the hand on his back and he knew it was a cop. He also knew the cop didn't need a reason. 
three black men getting out of a cab on a street corner after midnight was all the reason the white cop needed. They didn't fight it, didn't argue about whether or not the needles on the floor of the cab were theirs because they'd already lost this one. At least Sonny had. The cop pulled the gun from Sonny's pocket. What's this? Shit. He shouldn't have fucked around with no gun. Down at the detention center, his gut felt rotten. There was pounding in his veins, cold sweat on his face, panic attack maybe, or just a Jones for more junk. His body began to tremble, and then it shook violently. One cop called another for backup, but they couldn't hold him. That meant subjugation. That meant extreme force. That meant a straitjacket. He was calmer in the courtroom, cool, collected. He was no longer strapped up. He didn't look crazy. He didn't have a rap sheet. And he hadn't actually fired the gun. The judge saw something different. The judge saw an addict with a loaded weapon, a menace to society. The judge called it armed robbery. So in early 1952, Sonny Rollins didn't get to read all the good press he was finally receiving for his music. Nor did he hear that Miles Davis wanted him for a prestigious gig at Birdland because Sonny Rollins was on that 400-acre penal colony in the middle of the East River, doing one to three years on Rikers Island. Hey guys, I want to talk to you about my Tacovas cowboy boots. I picked them up while I was in Austin, Texas. I had this event I had to go to that night. It was a formal thing. I had this idea of what I was going to wear, but I needed the one extra thing. And I was like, aha, Tacovas. There's a Tacovas here in Austin. The dudes who worked at the store were great. I found the exact boot I was looking for. This boot is called the Dylan. I got it in midnight black. I wore them to this formal event. I had on a suit. And then tonight, I'm going to wear them with jeans to my son's baseball game. These things are amazing cowboy boots. They're super comfortable, and I can tell already that they're going to last for a long time. A couple things you can do here to check out Tacovis. If you can, stop by your local Tacovis store. Have a complimentary drink or two. The experience is awesome. You can shop all the new styles. You're going to smell that fresh leather in the store. The friendly staff are going to be at your service. They're going to take care of you. They're going to make you feel like a rock star. A lot of the Tacova stores have these leather custom branding services to make your boots truly personalized. They put on regular live music and events. It's an awesome in-store experience. So if you have the opportunity to check out a Tacova store, I highly recommend it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Dot com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and they ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me, and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. 
Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com slash membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership and an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland All Access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Up on the Williamsburg Bridge, the wind howled. The gloves on his fingers barely provided comfort, and he was cold and he had a piss. But Sonny Rollins was a monk. Every second of every day spent in prayer. Sonny Rollins was a samurai, hours at a time repeating the same motif on his horn. He got in the reps, and the reps built strength and stamina. Below him, life went on. Miles, Train, Monk, they all kept playing and recording and doing their thing. Sonny's wife, Lucille, worked a secretarial job to keep the lights on. God knows they couldn't rely on Sonny's royalty checks alone. Because even though this was work, up here for six, eight, even 12 hours a day, every day, it didn't pay. The hardest work never does. A year had passed since Sonny Rollins first climbed the stairs of the Williamsburg Bridge and began to practice. A year without gigs. A year without the money that came from those gigs. I'm talking two grand a week, easy. That's equivalent to $20,000 today. Per week. No shit. And he gave up that kind of living and the kind of lifestyle for a whole year and counting. Just so that he could pursue artistic excellence. And that's what it was all about getting out of that scene and then getting above it. Not just musically, but literally. Temptations were too much, like dope. But dope was in the past, despite what some were saying. Sonny wasn't up on that bridge to kick heroin. He'd already done that. Sonny was up on that bridge to kick another bad habit. Stay away from Charlie Parker and stay away from Sonny Rollins. In 1952, that kind of advice was appreciated, but not surprising. Because although Sonny Rollins was out of Rikers, having served only 10 months for getting busted with Kenny Drew's gun, he wasn't rehabilitated. Rikers was an overcrowded mess of junkies, thieves, murderers, and rapists. Rikers didn't rehabilitate shit. Rikers reinforced who you already were, the person you were quickly becoming. Sonny Rollins went in a junkie, and Sonny Rollins came out a junkie. He was still a thief, but his code had changed. It wasn't just squares who were marks anymore. Anyone was fair game. So most cats kept their distance. They didn't want to work with Sonny, let alone get within arm's reach. Fellow junkies, however, 
were a different story. Miles Davis didn't pick pockets, but Miles pimped women, and Miles played that desperation game. Charlie Parker, Bird, he was desperation incarnate. The legendary player, the god, the prophet, now nothing more than a pariah, strung out, nodding off, banned from stepping inside Birdland, the jazz club that was named after him. Bird was the reason so many players like Sonny got turned on to heroin. Bird couldn't help but feel responsible for their addictions. And if he couldn't offer them a cure, the least he could do was offer them a gig. Bird hired Sonny and Miles for a session. Bird asked Sonny point blank if he had finally kicked the habit. Sonny lied and told him he had. That's good, Bird said, but Sonny saw the way Bird looked at him for the rest of the session. Bird knew Sonny was full of shit. Bird was disappointed, insulted even. He didn't talk to Sonny after that. Not even when Sonny pulled the kind of arrogant bullshit he was known for when he took his solo. Quoted the melody from Irving Berlin's Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better. The student wagging his tongue at the master. Just like dope, this is what Sonny perceived to be the path to greatness. A total lack of humility, total arrogance. The New York City clubs didn't care if Sonny was arrogant or not. His cabaret card had been revoked back when he was arrested. In the 1950s, jazz musicians were required to have a cabaret card in order to perform live. If you were convicted of a crime, that card was taken away as punishment. And no one would look the other way and hire you. Because NYPD enforced the law and club owners didn't want to risk their place getting shut down for a junkie. The law targeted jazz players because jazz was only performed in quote-unquote cabarets and not in the places where the upper crust congregated, jazz consisting mostly of black players and the upper crust being exclusively white. Cabaret cards were bullshit. Sonny Rollins knew this. It wasn't just about his right to make an honest living. It was about his right as a human being. Even worse, if he wanted to get the card back, he had to debase himself further. Not through official channels, through back doors, under the table, off-site. Sonny approached the guy at the agreed-upon meeting spot, blocks away from the precinct. Flat-top haircut, glasses, white shirt, khakis, total herb. He wasn't wearing the uniform, but he screamed narc. Sonny approached him cautiously. The alleyway was far enough off the beaten path that anything could happen and no one would be the wiser. Not that anyone would give a fuck about a dead horn player. The plainclothes cop cocked his head slightly. You bring the money, Rollins? Sonny pulled a 20 from his pocket and tried to look casual as he slipped it into the cop's hand. This is it? Come on, man, that's all I got, Sonny pleaded. That was bullshit. He had more cash, but he also needed another fix pronto. The cop just shook his head. I'll take this for now, but there's something else you gotta do for me. Some friends of mine at City Hall really want to see this new Broadway show. I need you to buy them some tickets and then go to this place on Chambers Street and hand deliver them. Do that for me and I'll consider letting you get back to work. Bribing cops and city officials was not sustainable. Neither was the constant harassment from his parole officer who bugged Sonny constantly about getting a nine to five job, about living like a regular person, not a junkie. But Sonny Rollins was a junkie. He was deeper into the stuff now than he'd ever been before. And if he was busted again, that would mean a much longer second bid back at the rock. 
There was one option, however. If Sonny turned himself in to the police for a parole violation, the max sentence he could catch was 90 days. He knew it wasn't a matter of if he'd get busted again. It was just a matter of when. He thought about his idol, Charlie Parker, nodding off in the studio, barely coherent one moment and disgusted with his legacy the next. The legacy of doper acolytes like Sonny. Sonny Rollins was determined to avoid the same fate. In March of 1954, after 17 months on the outside, Sonny went to the police and confessed that he had violated his parole by getting high. He was sent back to Rikers. Once again, prison was no different than the street. There were guards to bribe, pushers to befriend, corruption to navigate. It was just 90 days. He could do this. Sonny blocked it all out, like he was a kid all over again, inside the closet of his bedroom, blowing his horn in solitude. He made nice with the prison chaplain, played Sunday morning hymns at the chapel on a horn donated by the Salvation Army. And he practiced, he wrote. While at Rikers that second time, he composed three songs, Arigen, Doxy, and Olio, all of which would later become jazz standards. The incarcerated world spun around him in its violent depravity. And when his 90 days were up, Sonny Rollins knew he'd be stepping right back into a world of temptation and vice. It was a vicious cycle, a cycle he needed to break, a sickness he needed to cure. Down a long hallway inside a secluded room on a wing of the Public Health Service Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky, a patient was given a small cup of water to drink. The patient thought the liquid contained medicine as part of a trial to find a cure for schizophrenia. That's what he signed up for, at least. But what the patient didn't know was that the water was dosed with LSD and that he was an unwitting participant in a top-secret government experiment. Sonny Rollins didn't know anything about MKUltra. No one did. No one at the Public Health Service Hospital, AKA the Narcotic Farm, AKA Narco, or simply the farm, knew that the US government was using human beings as guinea pigs to test the long-term effects of LSD. Guys like Sonny were at the farm to take the quote-unquote cure, dolaphine to wean you off junk, 10 to 14 days of detox, followed by four months in the general population. The Lexington facility was famous for getting many jazz musicians off dope. Dexter Gordon, Chet Baker, Elvin Jones, Lee Morgan, even Sammy Davis Jr. all took the cure at the farm at one point. Sonny was at the farm when he heard the news. Charlie Parker was dead. Only 34 years old, but his junkie lifestyle had been so rough, the coroner pegged him for 60. Sonny mourned Bird's death. He still wanted to be like his one-time mentor, but now only in the way he played. Because now Sonny was clean. He was no junkie, and he was determined to stay that way. Things would be different. Bird was dead. Sonny was born anew and nothing would ever be the same again. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. The term shedding, as in woodshedding, as in you gotta get outside yourself and your routine and go out to the proverbial woodshed to work on your craft, 
refers to the time an artist takes to practice, to grow, to hone new material, and with any luck, level up. Perhaps you do this at a shed out in the woods, hence the woodshed thing, and you can imagine that said woodshed is where all that chopped wood is kept, hence the other saying, great chops. As in, that horn player has great chops. Okay, that last part isn't true. I really wanted it to be true for a minute. I was like, great chops, chop wood, and I thought I was onto something about the slang chops. In actuality, refers to a horn player's jaw or mouth, but I digress. When Sonny Rollins decided it was time to woodshed, he sequestered himself not in a shed in the woods, but up on the Williamsburg Bridge overlooking the East River in New York City. He was up there just about every single day for two years, rain or shine, hot or cold, hiding in plain sight, hyper-focused on one thing, to get better. Getting better wasn't just about refining his own sound in the face of his peers' innovations, and it wasn't just about distancing himself from a life of drugs and crime. Sonny Rollins was on that bridge to make a life change because he nearly died on the streets below. The old radio in Sonny Rollins' apartment crackled. Breaking news from Midtown, from Birdland, but not from inside Birdland, from outside Birdland. It was August 25th, 1959, around midnight. NYPD had just beat the shit out of Miles Davis for the offense of standing outside for smoking on the sidewalk for refusing to move along at his own gig. Sonny felt sick to his stomach as he listened to the DJ detail the vicious assault. Sonny had remained clean after his time at the farm, so he and Miles no longer bonded over getting a fix. But Miles remained a friend, a champion of Sonny's playing. And an attack on a friend, an attack on a fellow horn player, it was an attack on Sonny, an attack on all of them. Sonny sprang into action. He grabbed a starter pistol from a desk drawer, just a tiny thing, loaded with blanks. Nothing like the one he'd used with Kenny Drew years ago. It was necessary. Necessary to show the cops he was serious. Fucking NYPD. They'd put him in a straitjacket, revoked his cabaret card, shipped him off to Rikers like he was a junkie nobody. He ran out the door of his apartment in a flash, hailed a cab, and the taxi shot off into the night. Up FDR Drive, in the nocturnal glow of passing headlights like blood coursing through a vein. Sonny could only imagine how bad the scene would be when he got there the blood running down Miles' head, ruining his pristine white suit. Miles taking his defiant rap while the cops swung their nightsticks some more. Police loved it when he mouthed off to them. A crowd would gather, some with horror and disgust on their faces, others with that sanctimonious look in their eyes. The look that said jazz was deplorable and led to scenes like this one, to bloodshed and fear. The motherfucker brought it on himself, all that shit. Sonny shook with anger. He stuck his hand in his pocket. He felt the starter pistol, and he told the cabbie to hightail it. It was time to get his hands dirty. For nearly four years, Sonny Rollins had been living the clean life, the life championed by guys like Max Roach and Clifford Brown, jazz musicians who proved you didn't have to shoot up to be a good player. In fact, you were better without dope. Sonny channeled that newfound freedom into one of the most prolific stretches of his career. From 1955 to 1959, he released a string of classic albums as a leader. Work Time, Tenor Madness, Saxophone, Colossus, Way Out West, Freedom Suite. He played on Monk's brilliant corners, an all-timer if there ever was one. He was named Downbeat Magazine's Tenor Player of the Year. He was better than ever. He was the greatest. 
and he didn't let anyone forget it. While recording the title track for Tenor Madness, which featured Sonny's old friend, John Coltrane, Sonny was still pulling the kind of cocky, immature shit he pulled on that session with Bird. In Sonny's eyes, he was the man, and Train was just a kid, a hungry upstart worshiping at the feet of the master. Sonny lay back while Train blew hard. Sonny barely tried. He could do this with both eyes closed. And the two players traded fours, and then Sonny fucked with Train just for show. Train played a lick and Sonny flipped it around and played the lick back in reverse. Train felt the heat. Every tenor player felt the heat coming from Sonny Rollins, possibly the most incisive and influential jazz instrumentalist since Charlie Parker. And that's a quote from the New Yorker at the time. Train knew he had to do something different, play with sheer passion and force, sheets of sound. Sonny didn't know what the hell he was hearing when Train started to make that shift. It confused him. That confusion in turn made him frustrated. And then he, Sonny Rollins, was the one feeling the heat. Train was on his way to some interstellar region. But that wasn't the only heat Sonny Rollins felt. There was more than was emanating from a club in Manhattan. The cab pulled over at 1678 Broadway. Sonny hopped out. He pulled the starter pistol from his pocket. He was ready for anything ready to stand his ground and defend his friend. But the sidewalk outside Birdland was empty. Miles was gone, and so were the cops. All that was left were dark patches of blood on the pavement. Sonny stared down at all of Miles' blood and suddenly the sick to his stomach feeling came back. Only this time, it wasn't because of what had happened, but because of what didn't happen. What the hell was he thinking? Rushing down to Birdland with a pistol in his hand? The cops wouldn't know it was loaded with blanks. They would have taken one look at Sonny and it would have been over. All of it. Shit, they beat Miles Davis till he bled for standing there for nothing more than the crime of being black and playing jazz. Just imagine what they would have done to Sonny with a fucking piece in his hand. He shuddered at the thought. He shuddered at the scene. In a matter of months, he left that scene behind as he made his way over to Delancey Street and climbed the steps of the Williamsburg Bridge for the first time. Sonny Rollins began his descent with a flashlight in one hand and his tenor sax in the other. It was dark and he could barely see. He kept moving. He'd been up here for a day and a half now, hyper-focused once again, practicing. Scales, melodies, snippets of old standards, anything that passed the time, anything to take his mind off of what was going on around him. Around him was chaos. Not the usual chaos. It was smoke and fire, a cloud of toxic dust slowly blanketing New York City. He saw it with his own two eyes, but not from up on the bridge. He was in his apartment on the 39th floor when it happened. No power, no contact, no way out, and no way of knowing who was alive and who was dead. It was around 36 hours later when the National Guard evacuated the building. Sonny held the flashlight in front of him as he walked down all 39 flights. All the way to the ground floor, outside on the street, 
just six blocks from the World Trade Center, or at least the spot where the World Trade Center used to be. Both towers were now just rubble and smoke. Sonny boarded an evacuation bus, the Mark VI in his hand. He never went anywhere without his horn. The horn was it. It was practice, discipline. It was a completion of the circle. The person on stage and off. The person up on the bridge and up in that apartment. They were one and the same. When he'd left the Williamsburg Bridge for the last time, exactly four decades earlier in 1961, Sonny had been missing from the jazz scene for two years. When he returned, John Coltrane was now the saxophone colossus. That meant the pressure was off. Sonny no longer worried about what other people thought about him anyway. And the only person he wanted to be the best for was himself. Plus, demand for Sonny Rollins was at an all-time high. He picked up gigs immediately. He signed a $90,000 six-album deal with RCA Records, a huge deal for a jazz musician and the biggest deal RCA had ever given a black artist at the time. More important than a record deal, though, was how he was now playing. It wasn't at all like he played before. That's not to say he no longer sounded like Sonny Rollins, because he did. But all that practice, that focus, that time alone, all the tapping into something bigger, something up in the clouds that you can't see with the human eye, but you knew is there, it changed him. He wasn't playing that arrogant shit anymore like he pulled on Bird and Train. He was humble, he was pious. He played not like who he was, but like the person he wanted to be. And over the ensuing years, he continued to practice, to play, to get better, and became that person. Parker laid the groundwork, and Coltrane went interstellar, and Ornette went way out, and Dexter Gordon had tone for days. All of those guys are giants in their own right. Sonny, however, is the master. He's been called the greatest living improviser. A petition has been brought before New York City Council to rename the Williamsburg Bridge in his honor. But in 2014, at the age of 84, Sonny Rollins was forced to stop playing altogether due to pulmonary fibrosis, a disease that leaves lung tissue damaged and scarred. Now in 2023, at 92 years old, Sonny has outlived Miles, Train, Monk, Bird, and all the other major jazz players that he came up with. His cultural impact is massive. He has left us with great music. He is the consummate ambassador of jazz. But he can no longer practice. And in Sonny Rollins' eyes, practicing was a never-ending journey, a journey he was not allowed to finish. And thus, he never achieved the level of personal satisfaction that he chased for decades. I dedicated my life to music, he said. But I never got it to where I wanted to be. And that is a disgrace. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. 
And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod and on YouTube at youtube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rock a roller.